The Athletic. Lauren Hill. So difficult to stop. Oh! And then we're going to go to Hada. And then Kanten for Pernille Hada. Miedema. Miedema from the Dokers. Miedema. Goal, 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 goal. Deoro. Alexia Botella. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast Euros Edition. Coming up, Portugal can't squeeze the orange. Toffees hit the sweet spot. And it's hotting up in Morocco as well as here. It's Lindsay Hooper here and joining me it's Kate Borsay and the Athletics Arsenal reporter Art de Roche. Timing is impeccable again here, Art. We've got you on and former Arsenal stars have been shining. What have you made of this evening's action? Yeah, I mean, quite a fun day, to be fair, for <laughs> for those who uh, wear red and white. Daniela van der Donk scoring the winner for the Netherlands. So, yeah, quite actually, even the Euros as a whole has been quite um, quite good for those who represent Arsenal. So, long may it continue. <laughs> it's been quite a dramatic day, hasn't it, really? I've, I've loved the tension today. I've been a bit frustrated by some of the performances, but I've loved the fact that seemingly the underdogs have been absolutely absolutely giving it some today and you know shining a light on why we shouldn't make assumptions about who's going to go through well true and I also like that despite joining the tournament late on getting that late call up when Russia were excluded Portugal have turned up they really have it takes them two goals before they do but then two nil <laughs> down there they are it happened all over again let's start with the Netherlands who took on that Portugal side in the late kickoff Martins and a donk goes for it. Oh, that is magnificent. Daniela van der Donk with a dream strike. And the Dutch are back in front. An absolute rocket. And it's Netherlands three, Portugal two. And they needed that. Well, as Lindsay's just mentioned, once again, the Portuguese fought back from 2-0 down, but it wasn't enough this time. Portugal answered early goals from the Netherlands' Damaris Egarola and Stephanie van der Gracht with a penalty from Carol Costa and a header from Diana Silva. But Daniela van der Donk hit a rocket into the top corner to give the Netherlands a 3-2 win at Lee Sports Village. So let's break this down with you, Art, if that's OK. We've got that wonderful van der Donk goal to talk about but I I don't want that to actually take away from what was I think not the performance that we should be expecting from the current European champions in the Netherlands. No and I think I think as a whole Portugal didn't let them play the way they wanted to from the opening minutes really obviously the Netherlands were the ones that scored first off the corner but I think even in the opening minutes Portugal were really quick on that left-hand side, they had a goal disallowed themselves and it took them a while to kind of get back into the rhythm after going 2-0 down. But I thought they probably started the game on the front foot, really. And then you really just saw, I guess, as as you guys mentioned, what underdogs playing on the front foot can do to teams. But yeah, as you mentioned as well, I think it's not the most encouraging performance from a team that you would expect to go quite far in the knockout stages. That's the thing with this Netherlands team. I don't think that Mark Parsons has got them playing collectively as a team. If you took the comparison of what Serena Wiegmann's doing right now with England, whereby that Norway performance, you 
you couldn't really say that anyone was below par. They were all playing brilliantly. Whereas I could pick apart the Netherlands each performance so far this tournament and say, these are below par. These didn't know what their job was. But I don't think it's about individual players, is it? We saw from Sherida Spitzer how important her corners were as her corners that led to those first two goals. And Portugal just didn't know how to deal with her. They didn't know how to deal with the height advantage that the Netherlands had either. It's just that the Netherlands didn't make the most of their assets and they didn't they didn't play as a team. It felt like it felt very frustrating. And and I would put that more on Mark Parsons than on criticism for any particular player. Oh, what do you think? Yeah, I think you saw probably just after they went 1-0 up, uh, there was a chance where they played some really nice football, one touch through the middle of the pitch. But then you didn't really see that consistently throughout the game. It just didn't seem like there was almost a way for them to map out, okay, we're going to move through this side of the pitch and then cut through Portugal this way. Whereas with Portugal, I felt, I wouldn't say they were... Uh, the most planned attack ever, but they seemed to just be enjoying what they were doing a lot more. Yeah. And I think that the way they almost, especially uh, Jessica Silva on the right wing, just the way she played and I thought it just freed, freed them up a lot more. And with mm-hmm. that, you just create a lot more problems for teams. So I think that's probably, as you mentioned, where they probably don't know exactly what, each other's roles are you probably just get a bit of confusion at times and I think that's probably where downfall is probably a strong word because they actually won the game (laughs) but that's where they where they came unstuck yeah where they had a little bit of a hindrance I guess is the the proper word maybe and weren't as seamless as they should be it is three points. I feel harsh that we're doing this. And, and we were warned, weren't we, by Amory Postma that, you know, this is Dutch tournament football. They take it to a new level. So even when they are not wowing in their usual standards, suddenly a tournament comes around and here they are. But you think, well, how many get out of jail free cards? How many times going around that Monopoly board can they pick one up? So they've had Miedemar, they've had Van der Donk who picked out that beautiful goal into the top corner. And you knew as soon as it left her foot, it was going in the goal. But I wonder if that's something that can keep reoccurring. Maybe it can. Some people are very good at Monopoly and some are very good at football. <laughs> good point, Lindsay Hu. But I mean, I mean, how much were they affected by their absentees? And I don't want to make it all about this, but of course, we can't talk about how the side operated without mentioning that they were, of course, without all-time leading goal scorer Vivian Miedemar. She was positive for COVID, as was Jackie Cronin as well. Also isolating defender Anik Nuren. She has an ankle problem. She sustained that in the first game. And of course, the captain, the goalkeeper, sorry, Van Vienendal, out for the rest of the tournament. So those are key absentees. And I just wonder whether that discombobulated them a little bit, or whether that meant that they had to reframe what they were doing. Perhaps they didn't have a lot of time to think about how they were going to perform without those key players. Or is that too generous of me? They've got they've got such talent in that squad. They should have been able to get over those those missing players, shouldn't they? I think there's a potential point there in terms of having, I guess, struggles with dealing with that because if you take Vivian Miedemar out of any side, I think they're going to struggle because she is a player who, yes, she can play as a number nine, but she she's very much a player who almost 
not does what she wants, but she's able to roam about and affect play wherever she is, even if it's a bit deeper as number 10 or dropping even deeper than that, just to get a feel for the ball. So I think that almost changes the way you have to approach a game if you you miss a player like that. But then, as you mentioned, as reigning champions, you're going to expect them to have not just depth, but also different ways of attacking teams to unlock them. And I think you've seen that, say, if you compare this Dutch team to England, England have a, a, a very strong start in 11, and then they have another strong set of players to bring off the bench that can attack teams in a different way. So I think criticism is probably fair, but there is probably also that that point of, yeah, they're probably missing the best, uh, the best striker on the planet as well. So you're going to have struggles with that. We probably all expected in the absence of Miedemar for Lika Martins to step up and maybe take that mantle of, of being the the turnover player, the, the key change in the game. I thought they kept her really quiet. But then you look at someone like Egarola, who who was brilliant. And she's not as established in this Netherlands team. She's only been with them for four months so I think that you look at the personnel and it, different people will take the weight at different times. But if you can get everyone to hit a stride together, then you get the sorts of performances that we saw from England against Norway that we've seen from Germany recently because they've, they've all been in a wave and they've gone at the same time. And that's not quite happened with the Netherlands yet. Let's talk about that goal. Daniela van der Dong, I mean, a, a dipping, a swerving effort from range. It flies past the Portuguese goalkeeper, Ines Pereira. And she's not long back from surgery, van der Dong, actually. She ruptured her Achilles in November. So she's not she's not had a lot of game time back at all. But it was a super rocket, wasn't it, Lindsay? I know you loved that one as well. And that's what we expect from the Netherlands, those, those moments of sheer skill and joy. We like those sorts of goals because it's again coming back to that when it left her foot moment, but she shifted her weight so well. It's bo- it, when you look at the body language of top players, you know they signal sort of what they're going to do, but not enough that the goalkeeper absolutely knows where the ball's going to end up in the net. And that's the beauty of it. So you knew she was going to have this shot. The weight onto her right foot was brilliant. She didn't look up. She kept her head over the ball and it's just enough to evade. And then as it's as it's in midair, it's one of those beauties that you see it move. For a goalkeeper, that is impossible. They don't know where to go. And so at full stretch, it, it didn't even matter. Those sorts of goals make great highlight clips. So I'm sure in in years down the line, when we're looking back on this tournament and maybe we're doing one of our previews for what year would it be, Kate? I don't know. 2063? I don't know. But it would be in that highlight reel because it's one of those goals that's just lovely to watch. Are you still going to stand by your prediction that Netherlands will be (laughs) the first big team to exit? No, because I think they've just about... I think if they'd have drawn this, then I might have had some yeah. some weight to that. But no, I mean, I, they, they'll get through the next round. If they get through the first knockout stage, I will be surprised because I think they have been picked apart somewhat for different reasons, whether it's been through COVID absentees, through injuries, through below path performances. I just don't think they've quite all been ticking at the same time. It could happen during this tournament where it all does. And if it does towards the latter stages, then we might see Netherlands in another final. But I I don't think that's going to happen. I feel for the Portuguese 
you know, this is twice that they've, they've let games go out of their reach by being behind. Um, they managed to get a draw in the first one and then they've lost this. But with one point now, you'd think that that's it for Portugal. I thought it was a lovely touch, by the way, that um, Joao Cancelo, Ruben Diaz, Bernardo Silva, all cheering Portugal on uh, in the stadium today. I thought that was a really nice touch, really good for Francisco Neto, the Portugal manager, to be able to sort of reflect on that support too. What did you like about this Portugal side? You've mentioned Jessica Silva on the right wing. Art, uh, Diana Silva too, who scored the second goal. I thought she was very strong. Defensively, there's definitely a bit of work needed there. But overall, what do you make of the side? And by the way, PS, I just love their kit. I've got, <laughs> got total, total love for Portugal's kit in this tournament. What kind of struck me most was they were brave on the ball. They, When they got it, they didn't just kind of worry and crash it away into Rose Edge straight away. I think even when the second half began... And the ball came out to Amado at right back. I mean, I think most right backs would probably just hit that into the opposition half and hope for a second ball. But she actually drives inside the pitch, moves into the opposition half and the, the corner comes from that. And I think that's kind of what struck me. And it, it was evident throughout the pitch. I think um, you mentioned Diane Silver as well. And I think she was very tidy on the ball throughout the game. I think more so towards the end of the first half and at the beginning of the second half. But that security on the ball and actually wanting to attack the Netherlands, that's kind of what struck me most. And Norton as well. I thought she played exceptionally well in midfield to really take the game to Netherlands. And actually, not just Portugal believed that they could fight back again despite being two goals down, but actually create a bit of anxiety in the stadium as well. Um, yeah. I thought it was a real tournament game and it was quite nice to see that there was that real tension until the last kick of the game where the full-time whistle's blown. What I would say about Portugal is there were some really lovely performances here and I thought Costa did pretty well in defence. I know that the the two goals going two goals down won't won't have pleased them, but I thought they recovered from that. I thought Costa was marshalling very well. Borges, I always forget, you know, she she's was such a legend, isn't she? Yeah, and she's still got it. She's still very, very mm. good. And the pace of Diana Silva as well was incredible. There was a ball that was that was put forward at one point, and I thought there's no chance she's getting that and she did so when you've got the pace to run in behind and let's also talk about the way the game ended because they'd won a corner the keepers going up thinking that they've got one more chance and the referee blows the whistle <laughs> and, and I think there was even a yellow card given to the keeper afterwards for protesting to say look I've ran up this entire length of the pitch for the corner just let us take the corner but no the whistle was blown I haven't seen that happen that many times if you mm. win a corner at, at the death of a game usually you take uh, it don't you? you take it you, you'd have that final play but mm. they didn't could have been another equaliser really towards the end. We've seen loads of VAR today, haven't we? I and mean, we'll talk about what we saw in the Sweden game in just a minute. But what did you think of the VAR? The call to go to VAR for Portugal's first goal, the penalty that led to their first goal was was absolutely spot on in this one, wasn't it? It was well worth doing. Yeah, I think over the course of the day, I say mixed. But for that goal in particular, I think as, as a first watcher, I thought no chance, that's a pen. Um, but then you get, <laughs> you see the, the, I think it was the reverse angle and I think it's clear. And I think that's where you see the benefits of it because 
to the naked eye, I don't think anyone would have seen that touch. But if you are silver in that instance, that touch will probably bring you down. It is just a case of, I think, speeding up that process. So it is not such a long way, especially for those who are in the stadium who don't have the benefits of having a replay. I think that probably would have been probably the longest three minutes of their lives. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's probably where there's still a room for improvement. But over the course of the day, and I'm sure we'll touch on the Sweden-Switzerland game as well, but I thought it was used quite well. Yeah, and speaking about VAR, four goals ruled out for offside over the two games tonight. Uh, VAR overturned the penalty for Switzerland, gave one here for Portugal. Uh, Well, just as Portugal did, Switzerland did manage to challenge one of the favourites when they took on Sweden in Sheffield. We'll have more on that next. From the edge of the box, that is a super strike. Sweden 2, Switzerland 1. Just 90 seconds after Fridolina Rolfa scored Sweden's opener, Switzerland's Ramona Bachmann curled one in from the edge of the box to make it one all. With 10 minutes to go, it was the teenage substitute from Everton, Hannah Benison, who scored Sweden's winning goal to make it 2-1 at Bramall Lane in Sheffield. Loving that Hannah Benison has managed to score a winner in this game, Art. Just 19 years old. I don't think we've seen the best of her in WSL. She hasn't been given enough game time at Everton. But for Sweden, they don't mind putting her on and putting her under pressure. I think that's the thing with young players, that when when you put them in under pressure, especially, I think, where whereas with more experienced players who might think a bit more and be more considered about what they're about to do, the younger players are just ready to do whatever comes to their mind first. And you saw that with the first time shot, which she scored a similar goal for Everton, Uh, like that outside the box kind of first time finish into the far corner. And I think it was really, really well taken goal. So yeah, definitely trust, trust the youth. Um, (laughs) And I think hopefully that's not the last time that one of the younger players makes their mark in, in the tournament. And she's a great option for Sweden to have, isn't she? It was her first goal, actually, for her country. But I'm just going to weigh in here, and you can react to this as you will. I am thoroughly dissatisfied with Sweden. They were they were so annoying, and, and, and I'm going to use that word, annoying, to watch in the first half. It might be because I've tipped them to win, but I'm just like, I'm, I'm basically going up to the customer service counter and asking for a refund at the moment. They have been underwhelming, but then are we believers, and I don't know where you stand on this, Art, that in tournament football, it is about growing throughout the the tournament. I'm thinking of a comparison. I can only think of the men's game, but when Portugal won the Euros and they were pretty terrible in group stages, but (laughs) grew as the tournament went on. So is there something to be said for that? I think the main thing from today was they had most of the ball, but just couldn't seem to figure out what to do with it and that was the main issue I think once Switzerland actually tried to play football against them and the spaces opened up they kind of knew what to do they were much quicker in their play I think for for Rolfer's goal even a couple minutes before that when um, Blackstenius had a chance it was literally one touch to control next touch is the pass and I think if you have that clarity then you're actually going to make 
difficult decisions for the opposition team. But as you mentioned, I think for a lot of the first half, it was just a lot of, okay, I passed the ball here. What am I going to do now? <laughs> um. Well, yeah, and there was that confusion because I was looking back and I was trying to find out how much preparation. I mean, we were thinking at one point that the preparation for the Lionesses might have been a bit too much. I mean, it went up pretty much to a few days before the tournament even started and the level of opposition as mm, well was really pretty good. good. Yeah. And I think that Sweden are screaming, we haven't played with each other that they're screaming that, you know, we've not had enough time together. We don't really know what's going on, which is why I wonder whether it will click as it goes on. But at the moment, there is a disjointedness that that just suggests that they've not spent enough time together, certainly yeah. in competitive matches. Maybe. I mean, particularly in the fact they just didn't use the width. I mean, I mean, this is not complicated football stuff, really. They didn't use the width. They didn't, they didn't find their rhythm at all. In fact, in my notes at halftime, I've written, can the real Sweden please show up? Um, <laughs> or did the Swiss just read that? You know, Sweden put out a manual. One of their yeah. coaches put out a manual on how to beat them. Maybe the Swiss just read that. On the other side, you know, 19 players and staff affected by that stomach bug for Switzerland on Monday. They were looking pretty good on that stomach bug, well, I tell you. <laughs> they've basically gone from Switzerland to Switzerland and the whiz being for, I'm so sorry everyone, it's late, what can I say? But the whiz being for Ramona Backman's goal, which I thought was great. I had to I had to pick my son up halfway through this game. Well, in fact, after half time into the second half and we were walking him back from school, watch, I mean, this is, how, this is dedication for you, by the way, I hope producer Sophie's listening to this. She will be. Uh, we were watching the game with an earbud in each ear and it was on my phone. And we had to stop and wait a minute to re-watch the goal again. That's how much it impressed Arthur and I as we were walking back from school today. It was a terrific goal. It was top. I mean, when, when the ball came out to her, wasn't, you always have that kind of thing in your head where you try to predict what's going to happen next. And you saw the far corner open and you thought you have to go for it. But I don't think, in my head at least, I actually thought it was actually going to come off. And when it did, it was unbelievable because I think that was probably the only spot Backman could actually hit. And I think throughout the game, she was really the one who was actually taking the game to Sweden. In the first half, Switzerland was so, I mean, committed to defending that she was at times the only person in the opposition half. When she had that chance, I think when there was a misplaced pass and she runs into the box, she's got literally got no support. Um, so I think that moment just kind of typified what her performance throughout the game was before she came off injured. So yeah, I think that before <laughs> before mm -hmm. Van der Donk's goal <laughs> uh, later yeah, exactly. on in the day, that, yeah, exactly. that was probably a contender for goal of the tournament. Yeah, lovely curled finish. All eyes on Switzerland now, I think. How much has it taken it out of them? Because I thought they they were so admirable in their performance here. Just one change to the side. How bad was this gastroenteritis or bug that was going around? Because uh, they only had to do that one switch. Luana Bula came in for, for Kivitz. Apparently, they did lots of tactical sessions over Zoom. 
um, in the build-up. So they clearly missed out on training sessions. Maybe they they just managed to squirrel all that energy for the match. But what will it have taken out of them overall? I think we won't see that until the next game. And just before we finish, we should revert back to that Jonas Eideval tweet that he'd put out saying it's a weird trend to see some of the best players being played out of position. And it happened again here. Batman as a nine instead of a 10. Rolfer central instead of out wide. Uh, they both scored. So maybe it's effective. What did you think? God? Should we be playing all of our players? <laughs> Millie Bright up front for the next match against <laughs> <laughs> to be fair she'd but, actually take that would she Millie yeah, yeah. she's actually she'd have a go. Good. Bright on the end of a Beth Mead cross might work okay. quite well I think <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah it's quite interesting I think um, over the course of the tournament obviously those who aren't actually at games and are watching on TV would probably be quite I think they're quite lucky to get the Jonas Ederval analysis because I'm quite lucky to get that quite often throughout a season. And he is a very um, smart person when he's talking about football. I think his brain operates at a way where it's very micro details. And to pick that out, even though both of them scored uh, today, I think is quite interesting to look at. And I guess it just comes down to how do the national teams actually want to play? And it just comes down to also... Yes, they may be best in in one position, but or one role. But um, how am I actually going to get this team to function as a as a cohesive unit? And I think you've seen that say with even with the Netherlands. I know Miedemar wasn't available tonight, but Idavars played her as a ten for the second half of last season. Yeah, behind, but um, part, yeah, but Parsons uh, continues to play as a nine. So it's quite interesting to see how different coaches almost feel both players and uh, collective teams can can work differently. And I don't think there is, say, a right or wrong way to look at it. It'll probably just come down to who actually fits best. In, There's in not a right or wrong role. when the players are scoring. But I mean, if, <laughs> no. if being out of position means that you score, then can somebody do something with Black Stenius? Because <laughs> I tipped her for the golden boot. And um, <laughs> and I tipped her for a hat trick in this one as well on last night's show. And yeah, starting you to went, look You went huge foolish. on this game. I went 6-1, didn't I? Well, I thought Oof. the bug was bad. I thought the stomach I bug know, had wiped out the team. And then <laughs> when there was one change, I was going to message you and say, can I revert back? Can we yes. go back and record last night? show again didn't they yeah they did uh well there you go both those wins for the netherlands and sweden take them level on four points with the dutch plus one on goal difference at the top of group c portugal and switzerland trail behind the pair on a point each well, we're understandably gripped by Euros fever here on this podcast, but that's not the only major competition on offer right now. From Sheffield, we fly to Morocco next. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Something a bit different for our listeners here. As The Athletic's Nick Miller pointed out in his piece today, go read it, there's another big competition going on that deserves our full attention. That's why we have journalist Alistair Howarth joining us from Morocco, where he's been covering the Women's Africa Cup of Nations. Hello, Alistair. Joining us from a rooftop in Morocco. <laughs> we really appreciate your time. How is it feeling out there covering AFCON then in terms of we've got this comparison with the European Championship? What is the 
infrastructure and hype to AFCON like over there? Here in Morocco, it's actually, you know, we've, we've seen two sides to it. In terms of the actual infrastructure, the kind of provision for players and, and the actual tournament itself has been fantastic. You know, Morocco has, especially here in Rabat, has, you know, amazing facilities. And, you know, even if you compare it to the men's AFCON back in January, where there was reports of players being in really kind of terrible living conditions and stuff like that, there's none of that here. They've all been put up in kind of four or five star hotels, fantastic training facilities. Hang on but- a sec. Hang on. A klaxon alert. <laughs> The women are being treated better than the men were. <laughs> it's going to be a first time for everything. I think it's very much a reflection more of the the organizing country rather than kind of the actual value being given. But it is great. And it's great to see that, that actually they are being taken seriously in that respect. I think the one thing that I would say that this tournament is lagging behind the Euros very much so is the outside hype, the media hype. You know, we've seen a huge, similar to Europe, a huge upsurge in the quality of football in the last four years in women's football in Africa. But you know, there isn't the same hype, um, you know, for the Morocco games, we're getting quite full stadiums and particularly the opening game was fantastic. I mean, I spoke to Rosella Ayan, plays for Morocco and Spurs, and she was kind of at a loss for words to describe how amazing the atmosphere was. And she said she's never experienced anything like it, you know, but outside of the Morocco matches, there hasn't been the same kind of hype. And, and you know, when you go around the city, there isn't the same hype as if it was, you know, the men's tournament being hosted here. Um, so I think there's been a lot of progress and there's been a lot of you know areas that we've improved a lot on here since, you know, the last tournament back in 2018. But there is very clearly kind of the route forward is the increased attention, both from fans, from media and sponsors and everyone around the game to kind of catch up to where the game actually is at the moment. Is there just the one host city, Alistair, or is it being played out in different, different So there's cities? two host cities. So there's three groups. Two of them are being hosted here in Rabat uh, and one is in Casablanca. And how does weather and climate come into this? You know, I, I heard people talking about the Euros, how it's frustrating that some of the games are being played so late and families can't bring their young kids to games. Um, that's not an issue here in Morocco because, you know, families here stay out as late as possible, it seems. Games are kicking off at 9 p.m. and even the Morocco games will still be full of families with little kids. And so that's how they've kind of got around it is playing quite late games. Um, so there was one match in the group stage that was played at four o'clock in the kind of scorching rabbit heat. Um, and they very much needed water breaks there. But aside from that, most of the games have been played in the evening. And it is still it's still hot and it's still humid, but it is probably actually more comparable to what you guys are, are playing in, in, in the UK. One of the news lines that we have heard about, Alistair, is to do with Zambia's Barbara Banda being ruled out because of high levels of testosterone. It's something that we've we've not had that many incidences to be able to compare. I mean, what has been the reaction to that? Yeah, so it's been quite a, a confusing one. So obviously, Barbara Banda, famous for scoring back-to-back hat-tricks in, in the Olympics last year for Zambia. Um, you know, she she played in the AFCON in 2016. And then in 2018, she had a similar issue where she was ruled out uh, under kind of DSD rules. And then, but there's been a lot of confusion because a, a lot of people here assumed she would be fine to play having played at the Olympics. Uh, but but she was ruled out just before the tournament. But it, there's there's kind of been a real standoff between the FA of Zambia and as well as from CAF, the, the Confederation of African Football, because the Zambians said that they kind of had to carry out these checks, um, these gender checks, and that she failed them because she had high levels of testosterone. But when the question was actually put forward to Patrice Motepe, the president of CAF, he said that he knew nothing about it and that CAF actually had 
they were not the ones who ruled that, and that Zambia themselves were the ones who ruled her out. Um, so since then, Zambia have appealed to appealed to FIFA and CAF. So there's a real sense of confusion, I think, because neither side is kind of giving way, and both are kind of accusing each other of playing this. Um, but it, it is a real problem, especially because we, you know, Zambia played very well in this tournament. But Barbara Banda is, is one of the superstars coming into this tournament. Um, you know, she's playing in China. She's had an excellent Olympics. She's she's expected to make a move somewhere in Europe. She was brilliant at the Olympics. We we absolutely loved her at the Olympics. And look, she plays domestically as well over in China. In fact, she was a top scorer in the China Women's Super League, 18 goals in 13 matches. So we have seen her in action. I guess it just depends what the qualifying criteria are for being able to play in AFCON. I, I thought it was slightly strange as well because the sort of, I don't know, clinical reasons were that she had an excessively high level of testosterone and a manly body was the quote directly from from the association, which I thought was a really odd thing to say and an odd thing to add on. You, you know, it doesn't matter what your body looks like. The testosterone is obviously one issue. But anyway, I got a bit angry about that, Alistair, as you can as you can probably guess. Let's talk about other key players. You've mentioned Tottenham's Rosella Ayan, who plays for Morocco. But there's another WSL star as well in action. Yeah, absolutely. That's Ashley Plumter from, from Leicester City. And she is very quickly become a fan favorite for for Nigeria who she kind of joined up with last last season but she, interestingly she's since joining the Super Falcons she's actually playing at left back which when we spoke to her after after their opening game against Africa she kind of was like I've never played there before um you know it's something totally out of the blue but she looked she looked very confident there to be fair I actually you know powering down the wing she looked like she was a natural wing back but she she did pick up a knock and missed missed their kind of next couple games but she's expected to be back in the squad their head coach randy waldrum said said she'll be back in and obviously you know there's a lot of pressure on her and the nigerian team because you know similar to Ger- germany you know they've won nine of 11 afcons um in in the history of the competition they come in as heavy heavy favorites as always and they opened up their account with a with a 2-1 loss to you know bitter rival south africa who they met in the 2018 final so there's a lot a lot of pressure on on uh on ashley and the rest of the nigerian team in the european championships we have had a flurry of acl injuries and it's been a shame to see that big players have missed out on tournament football because of picking up these has that happened for afcon players as well yeah, so we, we, we haven't seen any ACL injuries as yet, but there have been quite a few injuries. You know, there was a really, really quick turnaround uh, between the group games. You know, we I think there was a maximum of two days rest between group games. And in fact, in Group A, some of the teams only had one day in between their two matches. So there have been quite a lot of muscle injuries. You know, the biggest injury coming to, you know, Barcelona star Asisa Oshuala, who kind of is Africa's superstar when it comes to football. And it was, you know, in the seventh minute, She's the poster Absolutely. girl. Absolutely. Um, she is the poster girl for everything that has to do with African women's football. And and in the seventh minute of the first game, she took a really heavy knock to her knee uh, and she tried to play through it. And she lasted the rest of the game almost, but she clearly was in pain. And it turned out she had an MCL injury, which was sustained from from contact. So it wasn't it wasn't an off the ball issue. But the other star of the tournament, Tembi Hatlana, who, you know, was the top goal scorer in 2018 and the player of the tournament also has picked up an injury. She in her words, popped her Achilles tendon. Um, and that Ouch. was off the that ball. That sounds painful. She kind of, yeah. absolutely, you could see it. She literally was just off 
kind of from a standing start tried to sprint just five meters and her foot immediately gave out and she's been ruled out for three months which is a massive shame because she was definitely one of the biggest players coming into the tournament and you know one of those players that you kind of don't appreciate until you see live what a talent she is um, and it's just a real shame that she's she's been ruled out for the rest of the tournament. Uh, what about COVID briefly Alistair has that also affected things at all? Yeah, well, I mean, yesterday when I was hearing all the reports about the Dutch team um, kind of getting COVID case, I was thinking, oh, you know, we haven't had any problems with that here. Lo and behold, then I, I kind of go to the pre-match press conference for South Africa and they have a couple cases in their camp. Um, it's been reported that at least one staff member and at least one player have caught it. That's the only team that I've had any reports uh, so far as just South Africa who are playing tomorrow. But again, they they said that they had at least one player, but we'll see if, if more happen and, and you know, how it comes out for the rest of the tournament. Really interesting to, to get an update from you about everything going on over there in Morocco. We know that you can't stay on the roof forever. So uh, we shall let you go and get back to your duties. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. Our thanks to Alistair. Alistair, by the way, runs his own podcast on the whistle about African football. So do check that out. And you can find Nick Miller's pieces exploring AFCON and also the US influence on the Nigeria team on the Athletic website. In tonight's AFCON quarterfinal games, then Zambia won 4-2 on penalties against Senegal and Morocco beat Botswana 2-1. Cameroon versus Nigeria and South Africa versus Tunisia to come on Thursday. It's not just AFCON either. There's a roundup of the CONCACAF group stages on The Athletic as well. In the semi-finals of that one, early Friday UK time, uh, United States play Costa Rica and Canada face Jamaica. But now, back to the Euros. You're listening to The Athletic Women's Football Podcast, Euro Edition. Well, coming up on Thursday, Le Bleu are back in action. They take on Belgium in Rotherham in the late kickoff on Bastille Day. By the way, guys, the 14th of July, big in France, also celebrated in Liège and Belgium as well for those uh, Bastille Day geeks out there. But I wonder just what we're going to get in this game. France winning 5-1 against Italy in their first match of the tournament. They looked in pretty imperious form to me. What do Belgium need to do? I mean, it's it's going to take something, isn't it? Oh, It's going to take something and a half <laughs> to get past yeah. France. Definitely. I think out of the um, first round of group games, France looked the most composed in every aspect of their play. And I wouldn't say Belgium had the worst performance ever against Iceland, but there were definitely areas to improve. So I think with that in mind, <laughs> I, I would be quite, quite scared <laughs> going, going up against France um, tomorrow, especially considering yeah, just how efficient they were in high pressure moments as well. So yeah, that's kind of uh, a very tough task, I, f I feel. Now, uh, I predicted Katoto for the Golden Boot, but I'd like her to get a Golden Boot campaign underway in this one, <laughs> I have to say. So far, Grace Gayoro uh, has been the most interesting and the most successful striker for the French so far, scoring a hat-trick in that win against Italy. I'm also excited to see the likes of Diani and Cascarino again as well. Is there a danger that this could be a goal fest? Might I get Katoto off the ground and running with my golden boot campaign for her do you think? <laughs> well okay I'm gonna try and be constructive <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to promise too much because um I know 
Sweden disappointed <laughs> um, today, but um, I I do feel that there are a lot of goals in this game. I know probably wouldn't want to have me overpromise, but one thing I would say is when I was last on, I did back Germany against Denmark, even all when right. I was told not to. Um, yeah, yeah, and, fair enough. And we all know what happened. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't ask Lindsay Huber for a prediction after that, uh, <laughs> that Switzerland-Sweden prediction yesterday. Before you get too carried away, though, in Euro history, they've met four times, two wins for France, one draw, one defeat for Belgium. So it is tighter than mm. you think. Mm. <laughs> Maybe not. No, I, I think France will walk it, actually. Uh, in the other Group D game, Italy play Iceland at the Manchester Academy Stadium. We caught up with Italian journalist Lucia Perola about this must-win game for the Italians. Hi, Lucia. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll have to start with, were you at the game against France? Hi everyone, first of all, and yes, I was at the game, let's say unfortunately, but I was there. It was a nice experience, let's call it that way. It was a tough defeat, yes, but it was, let's let's call it a lesson. Mm, a warning maybe to Italy. There's not much to choose between both sides actually, Lucia, on paper. Which players in that Italy side could make the difference and why? You mean in the, um, in the next games? Mm, yeah. I think the ones who were subbed in, and I'm talking about, let, let's say, Giacinti and Simonetti and Piemonte are the first names that uh, come into my mind, especially Martina Piemonte. She was uh, the one who scored the, the first goal, the first and only goal for Italy. But she she's a special player, I think, because she had, uh, let's call it, um, an unusual career so far, because she has been struggling with uh, the physical aspect and the COVID in the last year. But in January, she joined AC Milan and she had like this big impact on the team. And so like she 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 changed everything in uh, in her career in those uh, 6 months and she is showing the same thing the same impact on the national team as well so i think she could be the um, like let's call it a surprise in the next game i don't know if, she, if she's a starter because i think she's a much stronger player if she uh, she subbed in during the game as she was in the previous one against France. So I'm, I'm betting on her for the next, next games. I hope she does as well as she did in the previous one. How do you think Italy are going to be able to cope with Iceland's aerial threat? Because they're quite a tall nation. We've seen that they can be very good in the air. Headers in the box might be something that will be a concern. But also defensively, you know, they might not be as easy to get at because they have got some very physical present defenders. Yeah, um, I was reading also on the the press that especially uh, Carolina Morace, which is uh, kind of known abroad also. And she's a star in Italy mm, regarding uh, women's football. She was saying that Italy is going to face a very tough uh, a team, uh, such as Iceland, 
uh, with uh, a very physical game. And as you said, it's going to be probably, <laughs> let's call it a problem for the um, Italian side. But I think that we have two strong defenders, uh, such as uh, Saragama and uh, Elena Linari. Especially Elena is very strong on the aerial game. So I think she's going to be the player uh, in charge, let's call it, of the aerial game. And she's going to be the strongest one from this point of view. And another point of view is uh, what you said, um, let's call it the, um, the forwards, because Iceland uh, also has a strong defense, a strong physical game. So I think the main purpose of the Italian team is going to be to be fast uh, on, the, on the forward game to also to score the, let's, go, let's say, a few chances they'll have. I'm thinking of uh, what happened also in the first, I think, five minutes against uh, France. Barbara Bonancea had a super great chance and the, the keeper uh, was, was very strong. Was, uh, she did great uh, uh, opposing to, to, the, to the shot, but I think um, when Italy has some kind of chance, those kind of chances, they just have to score. They just have to, 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 to do the right, the right thing. Yeah. And then they have to take their chances, don't yeah, they? Yeah, and then do the, the possible all, all they can to, to stop Iceland from scoring. Well, look, thank you so much for speaking to us and good luck to Italy for this one as they take on Iceland. Uh, thank you to Italian journalist Lucia Parola. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was us speaking to Italian journalist Lucia Parola, whose name I very much enjoy saying, by the way. Oh, you even rolled tell. the R. <laughs> oh, Ooh. Well, I feel like I haven't I haven't got my fill of French names yet, Lynn. So uh, I feel like I've got to go in there with the Italians instead. Oh, I know. I nearly bought up Wendy Renard for you earlier, oh, but I didn't. Renard. Um, the day after those games on Friday, we get to see England again as they take on Northern Ireland. We know the rivalry between any of the home nations is always going to be huge, but of course, not as much riding on this one for either team now. Northern Ireland know they're going home. England know they're going on. But do check out our Jordan Nobbs interview from last show for her take on England and Hobnobs as well. Yeah, there is a food section. And um, a humble brag as well uh, for my performance in the England press versus players basketball today. Yes, I took right, on, come on then. a lioness. I took on a lioness at, it's a basketball arcade game where you have to just get it repeatedly in the hoop. My name's Hooper, got to live up to the name. It was a draw, 52-52 with Against Chloe who? Kelly. Oh, so it wasn't actually a physical game of basketball. I think Chloe Kelly might have won that, seeming that I'm not in the shape of my life anymore. But but yeah, just getting it <laughs> in a hoop. <laughs> oh, well, I was pleased. A draw against a lioness isn't isn't bad going, is it? Are you doing any more of these? Are you going up again? Is that like a tournament? No, I think that's my turn. It's it, every match day minus two or every time we're at the the training base, a different member of the press will take on a different lioness. So it all started off with Joe Curry against Ellen White. She got a very tough draw. Ellen White had been practicing nonstop since she, she arrived. Had. Of course she <laughs> Yep, yep. And I didn't like the fact that 
the FA have also introduced an overall score rather than it just being, you know, Joe lost her, so it was one nil to the Lionesses, we drew, so now it's it's still one nil. They decided to do the overall score and Ellen White's score was so impressive that it's something like a hundred and whatever to <laughs> to eighty baskets or something. Oh, come on the press, come on. Now speaking of England, some good news is that Lotta Wuben Moy is back in the side having recovered from COVID. But Demi Stokes won't be available for that next game against Northern Ireland because of a minor knee injury. She actually is going to be working on her own fitness programme to try and get back in time for the quarterfinal. And in other news, for anyone heading to the second semi-final, uh, UK railway workers will be going on strike again on Wednesday, the 27th of July. MP and former sports minister Tracy Crouch took to Twitter to say that it's likely this wouldn't happen in a major men's tournament also adding slow hand clap for the men. Do we agree with that, Art? Do we think that these strikes would be going ahead if it was a a men's euro? I mean, there's an argument to say it would have an even bigger impact. Yeah, I I didn't actually know that and I'm and I'm down to go to the game so um I'm not quite I'm not pleased and now you're not now you're not gonna go you're thinking twice about it but um yeah I don't know if that would actually happen I think the carnage like if we rewind the year and if that happened for say England's semi-final last year I'm I'm not sure how how well that would have went down I, I remember being in I think it was Leicester Square on on the day of the final. I know it's different semi final to final, but even that's a shame was... there wasn't one that uh, yeah. for the final <laughs> to stop all the, the nonsense that happened yeah. at Wembley Stadium. But, but um e- yeah. even at like I think twelve, one o'clock in the afternoon it felt like an apocalypse. So maybe maybe it would have been uh, a good thing for for that day. But yeah, I, I'm not sure uh strikes would have happened the same way as say this summer Mm. well good luck to you art getting to milton Keynes. i mean it's not a million miles away if you did want to try a bike ride or something i'm not (laughs) sure where you live in london but you know might be i'm southeast so i'm not sure that will work (laughs) how how many buses would it be do you think (sighs) wow you need a mega bus from london victoria don't you i reckon you could do that fairly easily to be fair, I used to be a regular on the National Express, the triple four to Cheltenham for uni. I think that was very cheap. So <laughs> so rather than getting the train, uh, I would get the coach. So maybe I have to revert back to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's the semi-final. Just back to the quarterfinals, by the way. Of course, uh, England, one of the teams that have qualified for that already. And UEFA have announced today that there are additional tickets going on sale for the quarterfinals. And fans of the qualified side are going to be front of the queue. Uh, the extra tranche of quarterfinal tickets goes on sale Saturday, 16th of July. So if you've been frustrated or usurped or you didn't get it together in time to get tickets, uh, Saturday, 16th of July, extra quarterfinal tickets going on sale. Get yours quick. I also wanted to offer up our handles, Kate, because I have been seeing on socials uh, people that, whether it's a COVID outbreak or for, for some other reason, cannot go and people want to see full stadiums. So if you did want to get in touch with either Kate or I to retweet if you have tickets available, uh, just to reach more people who would like to be there, at Lindsay Hooper on Twitter for me and for you, Kate. At Kate Borsay with a weird Kate, K A I T. 
And I know people have been getting in touch with um, She Kicks as well, Jen O'Neill, and she's been doing a lot of retweeting as well. But it is good to get the message out there. We don't want empty seats. No. Um, that's all we have time for on today's Athletic Women's Football Podcast Euros edition. Art, thank you very much. Where are you getting the Megabus to next? <laughs> Sheffield. <laughs> Although I, I'm actually oh, that's a long one. Be, yeah, I'm <laughs> actually going to manage to get the train for that one luckily mm. but yeah Sheffield on Sunday for the Netherlands versus Switzerland which should be fun mm, very good I hope you enjoy that one uh, thanks to Kate and producer Sophie as well thank you as always for listening and thank you to you as well Linz don't forget we are one of the very few Euro shows that publishes daily and straight after the match action so don't forget to recommend us to your friends make sure you follow you subscribe us tell everyone about us we really appreciate your support from us good night or as they say in portugal ciao 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 <laughs>